It's so good to be back. I'm excited about being here. I told my wife about this place. She watched us on television, on the no, on the computer on live stream last year, and I could not come back without bringing her with me. No, and I'm could so not. glad that she no, is here. She doesn't travel with me every week, but uh, when we can make it happen, she goes with me, and when she goes with me, we sing together, and I hope you enjoy the song. Blessing of my very first breath You were busy working out a place for me to rest my head I didn't know I need you Somehow you could see through The busy years I'd yet to live With arms open wide You were there to provide before I even realized All I ever wanted, all I ever need Everything I hope for, Lord, you are to me Every day I live, you are there to give All I ever need All I ever wanted, all I ever need Everything I hope for, Lord, you are to me. Every day I live, you are there to give all I ever need. Long before I felt the awesome touch of perfect peace, you made a plan for my salvation. Full and free Lord, you saw a vision Came and made provision To satisfy my longing soul Forgiver of my sin Savior and my friend I realize once again All I ever wanted All I ever need Everything I hope for Judges chapter 3, Judges chapter 3, verse 31. 
One simple verse of scripture for your consideration tonight. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this gathering tonight. What an incredible way to begin the new year. And I recognize, Father, that we, I, I can't do this without your help. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come, you would make it easy to preach. I pray that the people would hear without resistance. I pray the enemy would be bound at every point of entrance to this auditorium. Challenge us tonight with your word. As we face a new year, may we not just make a resolution to do something different. But may we be willing to allow you to show us what we need to be in 2016. We're trusting you tonight. I ask all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. I've discovered that it's not difficult to exercise faith when all is well. When my bills are paid and when I feel well physically and everything is going on the way I want it to go on relationally, it's not hard to have faith in God. But it takes a special measure of faith whenever things are not going well, when the circumstances are not good, and when the relationships are not what we'd like for them to be, and when the bills are not paid, it takes a special kind of person to exercise faith when the circumstances are unfavorable. The Bible is full of instances about people who knew what it was to exercise faith when the circumstances were not favorable. I was reared in an incredible Christian environment. My father was an evangelist with the Wesleyan denomination, and while he was out on the road conducting revival meetings, my mother was faithful to gather the five Loman siblings around her knee every night before we would go to bed, and she would read the Bible to us. I learned many of the Old Testament Bible stories at my mother's knee, and when my mother was not reading one of those Old Testament Bible stories, we had a set of Bible story books that sat on a shelf just over my father's recliner. And every once in a while, my mother, when not reading the Bible to us, she would reach up to the shelf and pull down one of those volumes and open it up and begin to read one of the Bible stories to us that had these beautiful illustrated pictures. One of my favorite stories, the Red Sea Crossing. That's a great story. And perhaps you know the story, how God had led Moses from the backside of a desert now down to Egypt. And Moses has literally led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And now they face their first great obstacle, 
the Red Sea. And if you know the story, you know that as they were gathered there, they began to murmur and to complain. Why have you brought us out here to die in the desert? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? And they began to murmur and complain. And we remember that they were very good at murmuring and complaining. Whenever my mother would read that story to me, and I would envision that path that God created for the children of Israel to pass through the Red Sea to the other side, I used to envision it being about as wide as that aisle right there. But then I discovered that there were at least 750,000 Israelites. Some measure the number at approximately 3 million. And the Bible clearly tells us that they passed through the Red Sea in the span of one night. Now, if the channel through which they passed the Red Sea was as wide as that aisle right there, if they passed through the Red Sea double file, the line would have been approximately 800 miles long. It would have taken them 35 days to get through the Red Sea. So in order to pass through the Red Sea in the span of one night, the quartermaster general of the army did the math on this, and he said the path would have had to have been three miles wide, and they would have had to walk through the Red Sea in rank of 5,000 across. But I submit to you tonight, my friend, that that is as wide as it needed to be, that's exactly how wide it was. God moving in a marvelous way to liberate the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. There's a story that I heard several years ago about a dear lady who every time she heard the crossing of the Red Sea story, she would always get blessed. Do you understand get blessed? Do you know what that means? Now, I grew up in a rather conservative church and when people would get blessed in the church where I grew up, they would literally get up out of their seat and they would walk up and down the aisles and they would raise their hand and they would praise the Lord out loud. Well, this particular elderly lady, every time she heard the story of the Red Sea crossing, she would do that. She would get blessed and she would get up out of her seat and she would walk up and down the aisle and she would praise God for his delivering power. Well, one Sunday morning, her pastor didn't preach on the Red Sea crossing, just alluded to the story in his message and something triggered down deep inside of that lady's heart and she got up out of her seat and she began to walk up and down the aisles of her church praising God for his delivering power and then she settled back down and the pastor went on with his sermon. Well, after the service was over, a young man who had grown up in that church who had watched that lady do that, every time she heard anything about the Red Sea crossing, uh, he walked up to her and said, listen, I don't mean to be disrespectful but I've grown up in this church and I, I've watched you. Every time somebody mentions the Red Sea crossing, you get up out of your seat and you walk the aisles and you praise God for his delivering power. And he went on to say, well, I've been off to college and I have learned in one of my classes that when the children of Israel were supposed to have passed through the Red Sea at that particular time of the year, there were only about three inches of water present. He was trying to take the 
wind out of her spiritual sails. Well, when he said that, she got blessed again. And she began to walk him down the aisles of the church. And he finally got her settled down and said, wait a minute, I just took the wind out of your sails spiritually. Why did you get blessed over the fact that I told you there were only three inches of water where they were supposed to cross through the Red Sea? She said, I got blessed because my God could drown an army of Egyptians in just three inches of water. When we exercise faith, no matter what the circumstances may be, I believe that God can do great and mighty things to accomplish his purpose in our lives. Somebody made the statement that faith steps blindly into the empty void and always finds the solid rock, Christ Jesus. And I believe that with all of my heart. He is there to give divine assistance no matter what we may face in life, in this new year that we are facing there are many great warriors of the faith that I could talk about tonight. But this message deals with a man perhaps is unfamiliar to you. His name is Shamgar. His story is contained in one verse. As a matter of fact, he is not even mentioned in the genealogies. There's only one other place that he is mentioned in the Bible. And it simply says, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he too saved Israel. He's not known like Moses or Elijah. He's not one of those great renowned personalities of the Bible like the Apostle Paul. He's a farmer. He's an ordinary man. Here's the situation facing Shamgar at this time in the history and life of Israel. You see, the Philistines, a common enemy for the people of Israel, they had literally come in and they had subjugated all the Israelites. They had taken captive all of the blacksmiths. The farmers and the blacksmiths could not manufacture any weapons to do battle against these godless Philistines. These Philistine tyrants would come into the villages of the Israeli people, into their farmland, and they would pillage and they would plunder. They would rape their wives and kill their babies. It was a horrible, horrible time in the life of the people of Israel. Despair had taken hold of every man, woman, boy, and girl throughout the entire country. They laughed seldom. They wept often. There was this dark and ominous cloud of depression that had settled upon them. Defeatism had taken hold. It appeared that these godless Philistines had the upper hand for they were continually, day after day after day, tyrannizing the people of Israel. But what was worse, the Israelites had become content with being defeated. Hear me tonight, my friend. It's one thing to be defeated by the enemy. It's another thing to become content with being defeated by him. And I thank God tonight that on the authority of the word of God, I tell you that we do not have to be defeated by the enemy. 
We stand firm in the promises of the word of God. You can live victoriously through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're willing to exercise your faith, you say, well, Lane, that's all good and well. That's easy enough for you to say. That's pretty good preacher talk. I mean, you come in here, you're going to be here for three services, but you don't know what I've got to face when I go to the job on Monday. You don't know what I have to face in my own family situation. You don't know my financial situation. I understand. I don't understand all of that, but I do understand this. God has promised if we will exercise faith in him, he will carry us through any and everything that you and I may face no matter what it is. You do not have to be coerced and backed into a corner by the enemy. You can know what it is to live in victory in a consistent manner. You say, well, Lane, how is that? We live in a real, real world. The enemy is on the prowl. He is seeking whom he may devour. How can I live in consistent victory as I enter into 2016? I think Shamgar gives us the answer to that question. Go back to the statement. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He saved Israel. When I read that verse of scripture, the first thing that leaps out at me is that here is a man who is possessed with a divine discontentment. There's no question tonight that we live in a world of discontent. You don't have to go far to find discontentment in our society. And I'm not going to take the time to try and enumerate the various pictures of discontent that you see every day on the television, out there in the marketplace. It's there. Discontentment is everywhere. But that's not the kind of discontentment to which I am referring. I am talking about a divine discontentment. By his very action, Shamgar said, I'm sick and tired of the Philistines coming in here and pillaging and plundering our neighbors and raping our women and killing our babies. I'm tired of this. By his very action, he said, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. There was a divine discontentment. Several years ago, I was asked by a pastor. He said, Lane, you travel around to a different church every week. In your opinion, what would you say is the greatest need in the local church today? And I thought about that for a while, and then I responded to him with an answer, and it's the same answer I would give if asked the same question tonight. I think the greatest need that we have in our churches today, a hunger for God. A hunger, a divine discontentment to where we will not become satisfied with the way things are. You see, you, I, we, we will never have a fresh witness of the Holy Spirit if we're content to live without it. Uh, we have to have our hearts get hungry. Uh, the Bible says, in the day that thou shalt seek me with all of thine heart, thou shalt surely find me. You see, a sinner will never realize that there is a different life as long as they're content to live a sinful life. A saved person will never know the beauty of the spirit-filled life as long as they're just satisfied. Say, well, I got my sins forgiven. I'm okay. And not realize that God has so much more. A, a 
mediocre church person will never rise above a level of mediocrity as long as they're just satisfied to come and just punch their spiritual time card on Saturday night or Sunday morning and go about their business and see no, no real move from God. They'll, they have to have their hearts get hungry for God. I had the privilege of working with Reverend Charles Thompson former district superintendent of the Virginia District of the Churches of the Nazarene. He was pastor of Richmond Southside Church of the Nazarene. And if you know anything about the churches in this area, you know that's a great church. And when Reverend Thompson was the pastor there, he was kind enough to invite me there for revival meetings. And one day he walked up to me and he said, Lane, do you suppose you and your dad could come together and work a revival? You preach. He'll preach, and then both of you will share the music. I said, let me talk to Dad about that. And so we put that thing together. And several months passed, and my dad and I began to see, receive cards in the mail about a month before that scheduled revival meeting there at Richmond Southside. Cards like, we're looking forward to you coming. We're so excited. Now, we do it with Facebook now because I got some of those from some of you. But back then, it was postcards and letters and and I remember reading those letters and it just whetted our appetite. We were so excited about getting there. We arrived. It started on a Wednesday night and it was going to run through a Sunday evening. And we arrived there. My dad preached first and I did the music. And there was a, a response to his sermon, but nothing out of the ordinary. I'd been to this church on three different occasions. I knew these people. And when they said they wanted to have a revival, I knew what they meant. Not just the run-of-the-mill services with a special speaker and a few special numbers in song. They wanted to see a move of God. Thursday night I preached and Dad sang. Still, people came, they responded, but nothing out of the ordinary. Not to minimize what happened at the altar, but nothing out of the ordinary. Friday night, Dad preached again. Good service but not the unusual. Saturday night, it was my time to preach. And I can remember how I thought, God wants to do more here in this revival meeting than what we are seeing. And I remember how I went to church that night carrying a heavy burden, really wanting to see God come. I knew I couldn't make it happen. It had to be of God. And I remember that night. I remember my text after Dad sang his song. I got up and I quoted this verse of Scripture as my text for that night. The Bible in miniature, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I had no more than finished quoting the verse of Scripture until a, a, a young young adult gentleman stood up down here on about the third row in that sanctuary and he said, excuse me, Lane. Can I say a word? I said, you take your liberty in the Lord. And I stepped back and away from the pulpit stand and I listened to him. And he just kind of halfway turned to the congregation. Might have been 300 people there that night. And he said this, we've not seen the revival we've been praying to see. He said, it's not Lane's fault, certainly not his father's fault. He said, as a matter of fact, I'll assume partial responsibility. He said, tonight I wanted to get to the church for the early pre-service revival prayer meeting. And he said, my wife couldn't get her ducks in a row. 
And she wasn't ready to go when I was ready to go. And I got upset with her. And he said, I began to argue with her. And by the time we got to the car, we were at a full-fledged argument about her not being ready so we could get to church early. And he said, we argued all the way to the church. And by the time we got to the church, we were not speaking to one another. And so we walked in the sanctuary and walked down the aisle and took our seats here mad at one another. And the enemy had already won the battle before we ever got here. And when he finished, I said, I, I want you and your wife. Take your wife by the hand. Close my Bible. I said, take your wife by the hand. And I want you to come down here. And whatever you and your wife need to do to take care of this, you do it. Let God do whatever he needs to do in your relationship. Then I turned to that congregation and I said, maybe there are others. Perhaps there are other families going through tension and trial and things are not well at home. And maybe you need to come. Folks, I wasn't quite prepared for what happened next. I saw those folks in mass get up from where they were all over that sanctuary and they began to make their way to the altar and it was three and four deep lined around the front of Richmond Southside Church of the Nazarene and they began to pray and seek the face of God. It was unbelievable. That service lasted until 10 o'clock that night and that revival meeting burst into a fiery visitation of the Holy Spirit. It bled over into the Sunday morning service and we extended that revival three extra days. Seventy people got saved as a result of that revival meeting. Uh, Seventy people joined the church as a result of that. Why? Because there was one young man who said, I'm not satisfied with the way things are. There was a divine discontentment there. And folks, if we're going to see God move in 2016, in these uncertain days, then those of us who know him must be possessed of a divine discontentment. Uh, I love a story that I heard about a little boy riding home from Sunday school on an open-air trolley around the turn of the 20th century. He'd been to Sunday school and his Sunday school teacher had given him a little gospel track and the name of the gospel track was Faith in God. And as he's reading that gospel track called, called Faith in God, the wind comes up and in that open air trolley that he's riding on, the wind came up and it took that gospel track out of his hand and blew it away from him. And the little boy in frustration, he said, stop the trolley. I've lost my faith in God. <laughs> the woman sitting beside him said, oh, isn't that cute? And the man sitting beside her said, cute? At least he's got sense enough to know when he's lost his faith in God. Some of us will not stop our friends at pace to see if we even have faith in God. He was a man of divine discontentment. Listen, I prayed over these chairs before you got here. Don't leave here tonight. Don't leave here tonight if there's a spirit of divine discontentment. In you. Don't leave here tonight if you're dissatisfied living in your sinfulness. Don't leave here tonight if you profess to be a Christian and there's no power in your life. Don't leave here tonight if you just come to church and get nothing from it and never change in the way you live and your attitude. Don't leave here like that tonight. 
He was possessed of a divine discontentment. But not only was he possessed of a divine discontentment, I see as I read this verse of scripture, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anah, struck down, now get it, struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he saved Israel. And when I read that, I not only see a man possessed of a divine discontentment, I see a man with great faith. Great faith doesn't take a bit of faith for me to come into this beautiful facility that you have and look at Buddy and Gay Marston and say, Buddy, my, you folks are doing a great job here. I mean, just look around what God's accomplished through your leadership and through your ministry. And I'd mean every word of that. But it wouldn't take an ounce of faith on my part to say it on their behalf. I could look at any of you and say, well, I, I thank God for you. I thank God for the way you're serving the Lord. I could look at Bruce Bowen over here, that, that God did something special in his life, something special in his life last year, and now he's studying the ministry. I'd say, Bruce, I believe God's going to take you places you've never been. He's going to use you in ways you've never been used before and mean every word of it when I say it. But it doesn't take an ounce of faith for me to say that to Bruce. But it takes great faith to say, I believe God can use me. I believe he can use me. Try and envision what's going on here. Shamgar, a farmer. One day he is out. I've got somewhat of a, a vivid imagination when it comes to this story. I, I see him in my mind's eye. I see him out there plowing his property. He's a farmer. He's got an ox goad. You know what an ox goad is? You ever seen one? Ox goad, they still use them in Africa. It's about three feet long. It's made from wood. And at one end of the ox goad, there is a ball. It looks somewhat like that part of your hip, the ball part that fits into the socket. kind of looks like that. That ball at one end, and then it tapers down to a pointed end. And you would think that they would grab it at the ball end and use the pointed end to pry the oxen. But if they do that, they might pierce the oxen's skin. It might get infected, and the oxen might die, so they don't use the pointed end. They grab it by the pointed end and prod him with the blunt end. Now try to picture this. Here is Shamgar prodding those oxen, as he's plowing some new ground and something attracts his attention up there on the brow of the hill. And he looks and there's a contingency of Philistine soldiers. Some riding horses. Perhaps a platoon of men. They've got their shields on and their spears protruding into the sky. The sun is glistening over their helmets. It's not an unusual sight. Shamgar's seen this before. He's watched them ride off to other neighbors' homes and pillage and plunder, burn them to the ground and, and kill their children and rape their wives and even kill the husband. He's seen this. It's nothing unusual. No doubt he thought, I wonder which of my neighbors are going to pillage and plunder today. He just keeps prodding the oxen. And then he just glances up a second time to see which direction they're going. And to his utter horror, they're not riding off in another direction. They're riding toward his farm. He realized what's about to happen. 
He leaves those oxen standing out in the new ground and he races toward his little house and he calls to his wife. He says, Miss Shamgar, get out here. Miss Shamgar, get all those little Shamgars and go out there into that cave that we carved out of that rock facing. Pull that foliage over the front of it and hide there. The Philistines are coming, but I'm not going to be in there with you. You're going to be alone, but just stay there. I've got to do something. I, I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. I may, I may die. I may never see you again. But I can't let it happen anymore. I've got to do something. And I see Shemgar take that ox goad, that piece of wood, and I see him go out there in the face of 600 Philistines. He could have made excuses. He could have said, I, I'm not a fighter, I'm a farmer. But evidently, Shamgar wasn't good at making excuses. It might have been running through his mind, I, I may die today, but I'll die doing what I know is right. I'd like to have been there. Wouldn't you like to have been there? <laughs> I mean, I see Shamgar with that. Here comes that first Philistine. And the power of God falls on that farmer. And he begins to swing that ox goat and he takes that first one off the side of off his horse and knocks him down. He comes back with a backhand. He takes another one off his horse and then those foot soldiers come and he's like a whirling dervish. He's just going round and round and he's hitting Philistines and they're falling. And by the time he's done, when the dust settles, 600 dead. You say, Lane, that's a nice story. But what's that got to do with me? Here's what it's got to do with us. Not just you, but me too. First of all, get dissatisfied with yourself. Take a good look at your own life. And I'm not here to judge you. I'm just asking you to do a little spiritual introspection and take a good look at your own life as you begin a brand new year. Look at where you are. Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatsoever state I am. And that's a good thing to know that we can reach a state of spiritual contentment. But in another place, and in that verse, by the way, he was talking about temporal contentment. But in another place, he said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I get the feeling the Apostle Paul wasn't satisfied with the, today's spiritual gains. He wanted more. He wasn't satisfied to stay put in one place. He said, I press toward the mark. Get dissatisfied with yourself. You may or may not know this name. Dr. Dennis Kinlaw. Dr. Dennis Kinlaw is probably one of the greatest Wesleyan Theologians still alive today. He is in his 90s. He was president of Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. Also president of Asbury Now University in Wilmore, Kentucky. A brilliant man. He can speak Hebrew fluently. He lives with his niece in Wilmore, Kentucky. I was told this story just a few months ago. One day his niece was walking past the room 
that contained most all of his belongings at this time in his life. Small desk, a nice library of books, and a bed and a chair. And the niece passed by her uncle's bedroom. The door was ajar, and Dr. Kinlaw was sitting at his desk, and he had his head in his hands, and he was weeping over his Bible. Ninety-six years old. And his nephew or his niece stopped and said, Uncle Dennis, what's the matter? He looked up from his Bible and said to his niece, God just showed me something I've never seen before. Expect something new and fresh from him. Get dissatisfied with yourself. What's this got to do with us? The story of Shamgar? Go out on a limb. Exercise your faith. It's one thing to exercise our faith and trust Him for forgiveness, but exercise your faith in other things spiritual. Exercise your faith when it comes to being available to help build the kingdom of God. Exercise your faith. What's this got to do with us? Repent thoroughly. Repentance is not just for the unsaved. Some of us who are Christian need to repent of our indifference, our inactivity, our unwillingness. What's this got to do with us? Pray through on some things. I'm not so naive as to think that no one here has any spiritual sins that so easily beset you. There comes a time in our lives when we need to pray through on those things and settle the issue once and for all. What's this got to do with us? Make restitution whenever possible and whenever God lays it upon your heart to do it. That revival that I mentioned at Richmond Southside, that service that lasted until 10 o'clock, after people had prayed through around that altar, I recall that people began to spontaneously pray, or testify rather, they'd prayed and now they're testifying. They stood and they testified one after another. It was beautiful how God had worked in their lives and they were sharing, being so transparent. It was unbelievable. And then a man stood up over here and began to testify. He had not been at the altar. And he testified in, about things that were not too related to what was going on. It, it was almost as if as he talked, the more he talked, the spirit just lifted from the sanctuary. And I thought to myself, as soon as he's done, I'm going to admonish the people to go home and pray and get ready for tomorrow morning service, and then we'll go home. He no more than finished his testimony, and he sat down. I was about to pronounce the benediction. A lady, a mother, who'd been at the altar, she stood up right about here. And she began to speak, and she didn't know more than said a few words until the Spirit of God that had departed returned. And she said this. This last week, my son and I had a horrible argument in the kitchen of our home. And we were screaming at one another. 
And finally, in the heat of the moment, he looked at me and said, Mom, you never tell me you love me anymore. You tell my younger sister and my younger brother you love them, but you never tell me you love me anymore. And she said he was right. She said he and I just are never on the same page. We're always arguing it with one another, always going at one another. It's so much tension in our relationship. And then I watched her. She turned as though it was only that mother and that teenage boy in that church that night. She turned and she looked back across the congregation. She said, Todd, where are you? And I saw a young man stand up back there. Totally oblivious to everyone else in the building. She looked at her son across that congregation and said, Todd, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? I do love you. I saw that young man leave from where he was standing in the back of that sanctuary. Oh, he didn't run, but he came close to it. He came down that aisle and he embraced his mother. And that spirit of revival, as I noted earlier, broke out in that church. I wonder what would happen in the lives of people, even good Christian people, when God laid it upon their heart, if they'd go to that person they've spoken unkindly to and just simply say, I'm sorry. What would happen in those families if husbands and wives would come together under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and say, you know, we need to make this thing better than what it is. What's this got to do with us? Reopen your Bible. I challenge you in 2016 to reopen your Bible. It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to study it and apply it. Reopen your Bible and obey it. What a wonderful testimony from your pastor this evening. They talked about the giving habits of this church. But there are probably, and I don't mean to be negative tonight, but there are probably people who profess a high state of grace who have never entered into the joy of storehouse tithing. They don't know the beauty of that, how marvelous that can be, how we tie the hands of God by holding on to what we think is ours. What's this got to do with us? Be serious-minded. Oh, I like to laugh. I enjoy times of fellowship where there's a lot of levity, and I, I enjoy that. But we live in such serious times. And we need to take the word of God seriously and make sure we're aligning ourselves up alongside it. What's this got to do with us? Get to work. Be available. Be available. My wife and I, We will celebrate 19 years of marriage this coming May. It's been an incredible journey. I married her. She's from Indiana. She's a Hoosier. I'm a Tar Heel. We get along. She left an aging mother and father, a son and a grandson, a job as administrative assistant in the Free Methodist Church, 
in Bedford, Indiana, her friends, her church family left all of that to marry me and move to North Carolina. 1999, I went back into full-time evangelistic work, what I'm doing now. She stayed at home that first year because we needed some supplemental income. So she got a job as a secretary at a Moravian church. So for the next 11 months, actually, I would go out on Saturday, come in on Thursday. Go out on Saturday, come in on Thursday. She would go to work. She helped with my sons, Winston in particular, who was still in school at the time. And one day in November of 1999, I came home from a revival meeting. I walked in the door, and she met me there, and she gave me the usual welcome home hug and kiss. And then she pushed back, and she said, I need to tell you something. And with sternness in her voice, she looked me right in the eye. And she said, I did not move down here from Indiana. Leave my mother and my father, my son and my grandson, my job, my friends, and my church. I did not move down here from Indiana to live here in North Carolina while you travel all over the country and me stay here at this house by myself. Starting January of 2000, I'm going to start traveling with you. You figure out the details. <laughs> and so I figured out the details, and she started traveling with me. And back in those days, it was before 9-11, we could fly relatively inexpensively, both of us. And we'd arrive at a place and we'd get there and usually, not all the time, but every once in a while, somebody would walk up to my wife when we arrived on a Sunday morning to begin the revival service and they'd ask my wife, they'd say, Gretchen, do you play the piano? Most of the churches we worked were small congregations. Some of them had needs musically and Gretchen would say, well, no, I don't play the piano. Well, do you sing? <laughs> and she'd say, no, no. Well, what do you do? <laughs> and then we'd try to explain. She helps with the clerical work. Wonderful traveling companion. Gives a great back rub. I mean, good things like this. <laughs> I mean, it was almost as if some were saying, if we paid for her to be here, why is she doing something up front? I mean, they wouldn't say that, but it was kind of that feeling every once in a while. So we went through 2000. Early 2001, I was in the car and I was singing, trying to learn a song. An old favorite, an old standard song. And I noticed that Gretchen was singing along with me. And I said, hey, that sounds pretty good. Why don't you learn that? You sing the lead, I'll sing the harmony, and we'll sing together. She said, oh, no. I said, why not? She said, no, no, I can't do that. I'm a car singer. <laughs> I, I didn't press the issue. <laughs> a few weeks later, we were having a revival at our church, Powerline Church of the Nazarene in Elon, North Carolina. God came that Sunday morning. I mean, he came. People began to come to the altar spontaneously. It was the early service. Pastor Tim Taylor told his wife, Kathy, said, Kathy, go out there and get that crowd that's gathering for the second service. Bring them in here. They need to see what God's doing in this place. 
People begin to walk into the sanctuary and line up around the walls. And I just happened to catch out of the corner of my eye, Gretchen got up out of her seat and she came to the altar. We had a great service. Service was over. We're on our way back to Greensboro, a drive of about 30 minutes. And I said, honey, I saw you were at the altar. Is there anything I can help you pray about? She said, well, Lane, I went to the altar today to ask the Lord to forgive me. I asked him to forgive me for my indifference, my unwillingness. And she said, I told the Lord if he would forgive me, and he will, and he, and he did, I would do anything, go anywhere, anytime even if it meant singing with my husband. And I said, all right. We started learning that song that we were singing together in the car that first time I heard her sing like that. We arrived at Stratton, Ohio, a little church that ran about 25 people on the banks of the Ohio River, mid-February 2001. And on the first night of the revival, we started Sunday morning. On Sunday night, before we went to the church, I said, why don't you sing, sing with me tonight? She said, no, no, I'm not ready. I didn't press it. Monday night, I said, be a good night tonight. Why don't you sing with me? No, oh, not ready. No. Tuesday night, it was snowing. I said, sing with me tonight. It's snowing. Nobody will be there. She said, all right. And so we arrived at that little church. There might have been 15 people there that night. And when it came time for the special music, I stepped to the platform and I said, tonight is a first. My wife Gretchen is going to sing with me. She's never sung publicly before. And she's going to join me and help me with a song. She came to the platform, I handed her a microphone, and she took it with her left hand and then reached down and instinctively grabbed my left hand with her right hand and hung on for dear life. I started the music and she began to sing with me. You could hear or you could sense and kind of hear the quiver in her voice that comes with nervousness, trembling in her body. But she did fine. After the service was over, one of the main men of that church, Bud Flanagan was his name. I'll never forget his name. He walked up to Gretchen. He said, that was such a wonderful song. You'll have to sing again tomorrow night. She said, I can't. That's the only one I know. <laughs> he said, sing that one again. And we did. And she's been singing with me ever since. If she were telling the story, she would tell you this. I know I'm not the best singer in the world. But I know that when the words leave my lips, by the time they get to your ear, God does something with them and uses them for his glory. Go out on a limb. Try something new. My wife and I, uh, we have devotions every night before we come to church. And this seems a fitting way to end this message and then give you opportunity to respond. One of my favorite readings 
is Oswald Chambers. Have you ever been out in this way? If, there, if so, there is no logical statement possible when anyone asks you, what are you doing? One of the difficulties in Christian work is the question, what do you expect to do? You do not know what you're going to do. The only thing you know is that God knows what he's doing. Continually revise your attitude towards God and see if it is a going out of everything. Trusting in God entirely. It is this attitude that keeps you in perpetual wonder. You do not know what God is going to do next. Each morning you wake, it is to be a going out. Building in confidence on God. Take no thought of your life, nor yet of your body. Take no thought for the things for which you did take thought before you went out. Have you been asking God what he is going to do? He will, he will never tell you. God does not tell you what he is going to do. He reveals to you who he is. Do you believe in a miracle working God? And will you go out and surrender to him until you are not surprised an atom at anything he does? After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath. He struck down 600 Philistines with an obstacle. Our Father, your word so often demands a response. And I pray in these next few moments. That if you've spoken to anyone here tonight that deserves a public response, that they would find their way to these kneeling pads here at the front and talk to you about whatever it is that you put your thumb in their back about. Jody's going to play. I encourage you to keep your heads bowed and just an attitude of prayer. Did God say something to you tonight? Would you come and pray about it as she plays? Just get up out of your seat. Elaine, he spoke to me about something. There's something I need to pray about before I leave. Would you just get up and come right now? The Bible tells us that we are to pray for one another. So if you would like to come and maybe stand beside or behind one of these that are here just as we have a closing season of prayer before we turn it back over to Buddy and Gay, I invite you to come. Let's have a closing prayer with these folks. Well, Father, I learned a long time ago that not everything from a decision standpoint happens at the front. 
of a church at an altar or a place of prayer. But I want to thank you that there are times when we can come and we can publicly establish an altar. The Bible is full of stories of people building altars that represent significant moments in their lives. And I pray tonight that you would help us to think on a man by the name of Shamgar who was a farmer but had incredible faith and was possessed of a divine discontentment. May his example resonate in our spirits tonight. May we not be satisfied where we are, nor may we allow that to happen throughout this coming year. May we continue to seek your face. May there be a continual going out, allowing you to do in us things that we don't even know about at this point. Stretch us, 